Amen. Lord, we thank you that you truly are the Jesus who loves us. You sent your son to die for us. And we thank you and we praise you, Lord. We pray as we go to the word right now, that you would be our teacher, that you would minister to every single heart that's here. Your Holy Spirit would be alive and active, Lord. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. All God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Santa Cruz. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you a Bible. Or if you need it, please feel free to take it home as our gift to you. And if you have your Bible, please turn to Numbers 19. Again, if you don't have one in your hand, you need one, so just raise your hand. Don't be shy. It's okay. We don't bite. Promise. All right? It's good to be home. Um, we had a great trip in Israel. The, the plan is at this point, and it's tentative, but uh, Lord willing, two weeks from tonight, we're going to do a little virtual tour through Israel. What we're going to do is we're going to take some of the digital pictures that we took while we were there, and we're going to... Put the, hook up the projector and we'll, we'll show you some pictures and I'll kind of do a, a brief synopsis of each site and hopefully it'll be a, as much a blessing to you as it was for us. Um, my heart would be that until the Lord comes back, every other year we're going to go to Israel. So start praying. I know it's 2006, it's two years away, but my heart would be that, you know, pr- start praying even now. I'll tell you what, everybody who went was blessed. And it really does put the Bible in 3D. You know, it takes it off the page and you sit in the spot and it's just never the same again. God's Word is sufficient, but it's just an added blessing. Pray about it and encourage you. I know you'll be incredibly blessed. Well, let's take a look at Numbers 19. And just to catch us up, because I've been gone for a few weeks, um, I want to just get us back up to speed here. And I, I titled the message tonight, I, was, I, was, I thought about entitled it being surrounded by death, but I didn't think anybody would pick up the tape if I titled it that. Surrounded by death, I think I'll put that one down, right? So I titled the message, A Lost and Dying Generation. And really, that's what we're going to see tonight, is a lost and a dying generation. But catching us up to speed, what we've seen so far in the Old Testament is we've seen how God had a plan for man, but man chose to sin and fell away from Him. The children of Israel went into bondage for 400 years in Egypt, and they spent that time there because of their disobedience towards God. Then God sent a deliverer to deliver them out of bondage. They saw God's awesome hand, His awesome work. They saw the plagues, the pillar of fire, the parting of the Red Sea, manna falling from the sky. But in the midst of all that, they rebelled against God yet again. They'd been delivered out of bondage. They'd seen God part the Red Sea, do great and awesome things. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the word from the Lord, and they begin to throw a raging party. They have a drunken orgy, basically, and they start worshiping a golden calf. And it's been said you could get the people out of Egypt, but you couldn't get Egypt out of the world, out of the people. And it's for us, it's get the people out of the world, right? We can't get the world out of us sometimes. And too often we we call ourselves Christians and followers of Christ, and we live just like the world. We're, We're irrecognizable compared to them. We look at us, we look just like them. And that's what happened. They look like Egyptians out there. A golden calf set up and drunken rager, and that's what the Egyptians would have done had they been there. Then we saw God's judgment come, and we know what happened, that, he, they, that when Moses came down, he threw the, pillars down, or the, the tablets down, and he said, who's with the Lord? Come to me. And one entire tribe came to him. Which tribe was it? The Levites. And then he said, now they will be my priests from now on. We saw in the book of Leviticus just the establishing of all the different sacrifices. And we talked about how in Leviticus that the sacrifices, every one of them points to Jesus Christ. Now, we went to Israel, they had a model of the tabernacle. It was pretty sweet. And when you go through the tabernacle, everything you see in the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. And every one of the sacrifices is a picture of Jesus. 
You know what, real briefly, remember the furnishings. The lampstand points to Jesus being the light of the world. The table of showbread points to the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. The altar of incense points to the fact that Jesus is our intercessor. The bronze altar is a picture of the cross. The bronze laver is a picture of baptism, right? Or the cleansing that comes through the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant is a picture of God's very presence, a picture, of the hev- a picture of the heavenlies as you see the cherubim on both sides, a picture of what they would see in the tomb when the blood was splattered in the middle and the angels at the foot and at the head. And then we move on to Leviticus and every one of the sacrifices, the lamb that was slain, who is that? That's Jesus Christ, the burnt offering, Jesus Christ, the peace offering. And so we go through and we see the Lord just giving them clear instruction. And we get to the book of Numbers. And the num- book of Numbers could also be called In the Wilderness. I think that's a better title. Because in the wilderness we see that the, the people start heading toward that land of promise. God promised them, I'm going to give you the land. A land flowing with milk and honey. A promised land. And all you need to do is just follow me. And to make sure that they didn't miss it, this is our God, He's a great and awesome God. His Shekinah glory dwelt in their presence. Remember that? He gave them a very clear way of camping. And they were encamped in the shape of what? A cross. And so as God the Father looked down on His people, headed to the land of promise, what He saw was a cross. They're encamped in the cross, God's glory dwelling in the center of them, leading them into the land of promise, living in temporary tents. Again, a picture of us. We live in these temporary tents. We've been, sh- our, we've been born again through the shed blood of the, of the cross. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and we're headed where? To the land of promise. Amen? But we know that quickly as they started to head out, Judah being in the front, because that's the tribe that Christ would come from leading the way, that they began to murmur and complain. And that 11-day trip, that 11-day journey from, from the foot of Mount Sinai to the land of promise became a 40-year death march because of their disobedience. And we saw that they began to murmur and they began to complain. They began to challenge the authority of Moses. And we saw that they're, they're, they began to cry out and say, what about this manna? Instead of being thankful for God's provision, they murmured about it. May we not be found doing the same thing. Amen? May we be thankful for God's provision, not murmur about it. And remember they cried out and said, we want me to... Remember they wanted to go back to Egypt? They said, let's elect somebody and let's go back to Egypt. 400 years of bondage, all we did was cry and say, deliver us. Now we've been delivered. Now we want to go back because there's leeks and onions back there. What about the beatings, right? Remember? They were beaten when they were there. They were enslaved, but they had that memory like we have in our flesh. We, we have a selective memory of the things that are behind us. And we saw that the Lord sent quail. Remember what happened? They put the quail in their mouths. What happened to them? They died. Everybody who ate the quail died. And then they got to the land of Canaan. What were they supposed to do when they got there? What were they supposed to do? Go in. This is your house. I got a house for you. Here it is. Come on in. What did they do? Oh, I'm not so sure. I mean, only God told us. That's all. You know, that's not quite sufficient for me. How many of you have been going? Well, it says in the Bible, but I'm just not sure that's enough for me. Right? God's Word is sufficient. Amen? God's Word plus nothing else should be enough for us. And He only has to say it once. Well, it only says in the Bible twice. Well, how many times does it need to say it? Right? I've heard, I've counseled people. Well, it only says it in there a couple of times. It only needs to be in there once. Amen? And so He told them, go into the land of promise. What did they do? They got there and they said, somebody go check it out, man. You guys go check it out. Come back and tell us what you think. Right? And what happened? Twelve went up and ten came back and what did they say? There's what? 
There's giants in the land. Oh, man, we're like grasshoppers. They're going to smoke us. They're going to squish us under their feet. We can't go up there. And then Joshua and Caleb came back and said, hey, it's ours. Let's go get it. And what did they do? They didn't go. And what did God say? Because of your disobedience, you are not going to enter in. This entire generation is going to die in the wilderness because you would not trust my promises. You know, I believe that you can have a saved soul and a wasted life in a sense. The Bible says, by your fruit they shall know you. But once you're born again, it doesn't mean get on cruise control and be a big fat sheep sitting, you know, in the chair being a pew potato, right? God saved us to use us for His glory. And we can be born again and then just kind of wait for heaven. And that's what's going to happen, unfortunately. They're not going to enter into the land of promise and they're going to wander through the wilderness. And you think they were murmuring before. It was only an 11-day trip. How's 40 years in the wilderness with this group going to be, Right? And then they began to complain again against Moses. And, and the Lord at, some, at one point, remember Korah, Abiram, and Dathan? Remember what happened to those guys? They came against Moses and Aaron, and what did God do? Opened up the ground and swallowed them. God is a God of love and grace and mercy, but He's also a God of judgment. And the 250 men of renown who thought they were going to gang up on Moses and Aaron, what happened to them? Fire came down from the sky, and they were fired. Literally. Okay? Fired. All of you, right? And so this is what's been happening, and they're in the wilderness, and, and we see how they've turned their back on God. And it says in Numbers 14, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. So everybody over the age of 20 was going to die in the wilderness. And then God wanted to reestablish his authority, and we got to chapter 17. You remember Aaron's rod budding? You guys remember that from a few weeks back? Remember all the rods of the 12 tribes were put in there? And you take a dead stick and you bring it out and it's bearing fruit. It was God's way of saying, Aaron's my guy. I told you before, I'm confirming it one more time. And then lastly, two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, before we went to Israel, we saw God's provision and ministry. That the priests were to minister to the people spiritually, and the people were to minister to the priests physically. Right? We saw that. Now that brings us to Numbers 19. And what we're going to see now is a lost and dying generation. That God's going to give the children of Israel a clear command of how to remain clean and to be purified so they could remain in fellowship with Him. So they could remain in the camp in the midst of this 40-year death march through the wilderness. So imagine they're on this death march. Now we know this from previous chapters that at least 600,000 men were over the age of 20. So that means that they're probably in the millions of people that are going to drop dead in the wilderness. Now this is over a 40-year period of people dropping dead. That means, on average, you have maybe as many as 100 people a day dropping dead. So you're marching along, whoop, they just drop right by you. Well, he's done, right? Now, I want you to see something here. God's going to give them a command that as they're marching on this death march, that every time they touch or come near a dead body, that they're defiled by it. And he's telling them, I want you to walk where you, watch where you walk, I want you to watch where you go, I want you to watch what you do, but I also am going to show you your need for sacrifice. So we're going to see the sacrifice of the red heifer. Anybody ever heard of this before? Okay, I'm going to share some insight with you because we saw some of this in Israel. We're going to see its uniqueness, its significance, and then we're going to see the application of the sacrifice and how not applying the sacrifice to your life, what the results are. So let's take a look at chapter 19. Again, dealing with the, the cleansing of those who've been defiled, a problem that would become very prevalent as people were dropping dead all around them. Remember the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is what? Death. 
And he's saying, you touch a dead body, it's going to rub off on you. If we're hanging out with the world, it's going to impact us. And he's telling them that there's a need for sacrifice. He's going to give them a clear method for purification. And so too, you and I, as we're living in a lost and dying world, we need to be in desperate need for God. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at the sacrifice of the red heifer. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. Now I want you to see this first. It's an ordinance of the law. What does that mean? It means it's God's command. If God commands it, that's it. You know, it's sad to me that in the church today, people vote on stuff that God commanded. Do we need to vote on stuff God commanded? Does God change His mind? No. Amen? If God changed His mind, I mean God's God's perfect. He doesn't have to change His mind. He already knows He's perfect. Amen? And so we see here, this is an ordinance or a statute from God. Now, I don't know how many of you saw that debacle on Paul and, and Jesus. I don't know, it was last night. When was it? night before? That was a train wreck, if you saw it. It was just wrong, right? They, they did an hour and a half on Jesus and an hour and a half on Paul and tried to contrast them. And these knucklehead theologians, you've got an idea where I'm coming from, right? These knucklehead theologians going, well, Paul was on the run and he was writing things down really quickly and he wasn't even sure what he was writing and... Stop it! And here's what's happening is, people are challenging the statutes of God. It's God's Word. Amen? God used Paul's hand, but who wrote it? God did. Amen? And all of this is inspired by God. And you start watering this down or taking pieces of it out, the Bible has a, a real picture of that in Revelation, what it says. What does it say? All the curses in the book will be upon you when you start adding or deleting from this one. Amen? And you saw these, quote, theologians doing it. You needed one saved person in that program would have been good. There weren't any. They just have no idea. And so we see here the ordinance or the statute of God. So when God says it, that's it. Yes, Lord. Needs to be the only response we have, right? Yes, Lord. Okay. And so he gives them this statute. And he says to them, this ordinance of the law, Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish. Now, Death is a picture of what sin brings, right? So this sacrifice is going to be a picture of what overcomes sin and death. I'll give you one guess. Who do you think this is going to be a picture of? Jesus. If you're not napping, you know this answer, right? If I ask you what it's about, you say Jesus, you're going to be right about 99% of the time at this church, right? So here's the reality. This is going to be a picture of our Savior. But look what it says, bring a red heifer. Now, a red heifer was a unique animal even then. It's even more unique, maybe, now. Now, it's interesting to me that we went to Israel, and we went into this place called the the Temple Institute, and they showed us replicas that, you know, they're rebuilding everything to get ready for for temple worship again. You know that, right? They've got the golden lampstand already, they've got the, the breastplate, you know, and they've got... The, the bronze laver, and they've got everything, and they're trying to get it all together so they can go back into the temple. And, you know, they don't have a temple yet, but they want to have all the furnishings ready so when the time comes. Now, we know who's going to more than likely institute the temple again. It's going to be the Antichrist, more than likely, okay? We know that he's going to have a hand in it, because after three and a half years, he's going to stand up in it and proclaim himself to be God. Abomination of desolation, that's what the Bible teaches. Now, listen. It's interesting that when we went there, one of the things they say they must have before they can reinstitute temple worship is a red heifer. 
and they showed us a picture of a red heifer that was born in Israel. Look, here's a red heifer. Here's our red heifer. Born in 2002, but sadly, it had a couple gray hairs on it after a couple years, and now it's dead, so it's not the one. Now, they've got people all, and I'm not kidding you. This is right here. Here it is. Look. Update 2002. Red heifer born in Israel. Becomes disqualified. Here it is. Now, our inks. Two gray hairs. You're out. Okay. Now, that wouldn't be good for me. I'd be disqualified. All right. Now, the interesting part about this is that here's the rabbis going out to check out the red heifer. And check it out and make sure that they can use it. Now, they don't need the red heifer. They, mean, they need the main hefe, right? Amen? I mean, they need the Savior. We don't need this anymore. Done. Over. Right? But sadly, what's happening is they're, they're like looking for a red cow. Now, in this case, we'll see that this cow points to Jesus, right? It's a, a picture of our Savior. It's a sacrifice. Watch this. This is going to be a blessing to you guys. I was blown away when I was studying this today was totally blessing me. Some things I've, I've wondered for years, God answered for me today. Now, the, why, was the, why was the heifer red? A couple potential reasons. Number one, the blood of Christ. It's his blood, amen? But number two, it's interesting. The name Adam, Adama, you know what it means? Red earth. You know, Jesus was, God created man in his image, and he created him out of the what? The dust, out of the dirt, right? And Adam, Adama means red earth. So it could be a picture, again, of the humanity of our Savior as well, because out of the dirt, right, the red, the word Adama. And so this red heifer, now what does it say about this red heifer? It must what? It must be without blemish. It must be perfect. Again, why did they disqualify this red cow over here? Two gray hairs. You're out. Now, one part about that, let me say this. If we are still in the Old Testament, what they were doing would be admirable. But do you understand that we are no longer under the sacrificial system? Right? What happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil was what? Torn in two. It's over. Now, I've had people, even in our church, ask me, Well, Pastor Dave, why don't we keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Why don't we, you know, why don't we keep Passover? Why well, because the Passover lamb has come. Because Jesus Christ has come. Now, can we learn a great deal by studying the Old Testament? Absolutely. Does it teach us things about Jesus? Yes. Does it point us to the Savior? Can it encourage us in our walk and our faith? Absolutely. But we don't have to, we don't keep the sacrificial system anymore. I'm so glad, aren't you? Aren't you glad we're not dragging lambs in here? And goats? And out here running around looking for a red cow? Praise the Lord, Amen. But what happens here is in this time, this was a command of the Lord, and they were called to do this. So they went out and got this unique animal, and it had to be without blemish. So they examined it and made sure that it was perfect. Why? Because it's a picture of Christ, and He is perfect. He is without blemish. He is perfect both in appearance and at thorough examination. It says without blemish, that means from the outside and without defect. Not sick on the inside, perfect on the outside, perfect on the inside. That's a picture of our Savior. Amen? So this red heifer without blemish. But look what it says next. No defect and on which, no, which a yoke has never come. Now what is a yoke? A yoke is something where the animal is placed under the authority of a man and then is used and directed by a man to, to serve and to toil. Okay? Understand that our Savior was never obliged to any man. 
He was never directed by any man. He was never arrested by any man. Amen? Jesus went to the cross of what? His own free will. Amen? Did they arrest him or did he arrest them? You remember the story? He came down, they came to the Kidron Valley, 600 guys come behind him, and when they went to arrest him, he said, I am, and what did they all do? <laughs> Fell on the ground. He could have said toads, and they would have been frogs, right? He's God. They didn't arrest him. He arrested them. He's in control. No yoke of any man was ever upon him. Man did not arrest him. Man did not direct him. Man did not take over his life. He was completely and totally submitted to the will of the Father at all times. That's our God. This red heifer was pristine. This red heifer had never had a yoke upon it. This red heifer was a picture of our Savior. Now, what did they do with this red heifer? Watch this. And again, Jesus was not, was not taken, with that burden was not placed upon him. He took it upon himself of his own free will. Now, look what it says here. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest. Now, Eleazar is the son of Aaron. He's the third son of Aaron. Nadab and Abihu were his oldest sons. What happened to them? Smoked, right? Remember? They went in with strange fire. Remember that? They went in, again, they took fire from somewhere other than the altar. They went in on a day other than the Day of Atonement. Only one person's supposed to go in, and they went in together. And what did God do? He struck them down dead. When we get outside of God's will, we're rendered ineffective for ministry. I've had Christians tell me, you know, yeah, I sin, you know, I'm, you know, I got some sin in my life that I just struggle with, but I, you know, I'm just not that worried about it. I know I'm forgiven. Let me tell you something. As Christians, when you sin, not only does it grieve the heart of God and break fellowship with Him, but it has consequences and it renders you ineffective for ministry. God desires that we walk holy before Him. We're not perfect. We're sinners saved by grace. But we, desi- we should desire to not sin at all. And when we do sin, we should be grieved by it. Amen? Christians aren't sinless, but we should sin less. Amen? And we absolutely should. And so we see here that Eliezer, because he was obedient, he's going to be used by God where his brothers are toast. And now watch what happens with Eliezer, his son. He says that he take it away outside the camp. So they take the red heifer, and where do they take it? Outside the camp. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city gate. We sat right in front of the gate. He went out what is now called the Damascus Gate up to Calvary. And we see here that they take the heifer. They don't sacrifice it on the bronze altar, but they take it outside the city gate to sacrifice it there. Yet again, another picture clearly of our Savior. Now watch what it says here. Take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered, what? Before him. So the animal is slaughtered before the priest. This is the only sacrifice where the priest doesn't do the slaughtering. When the people would bring it in, the the priest would be the one to slit its throat. In this case, the priest doesn't slit its throat. It's taken outside the city gate, and another layperson slits its throat, but the priest stands there and examines it. Now, when Jesus was crucified, who was the high priest? What was his name? Caiaphas. Remember? Okay? Now, Caiaphas, was he there at the cross when Jesus was crucified? Yes, he was. Was he there making accusations against him before Pilate? Yes, he was. Did he slay the Savior? No. But he was slain before him, wasn't he? Picture of Jesus right here. It was the Romans that were you. Now, we all killed him. Do you understand that? 
we don't point at any people group. We're all sinners, and I, my hand is the first one up as those who put Jesus on the cross because it's because of my sin and yours that he was crucified. Amen? And so we don't sit there and point, oh, it's their fault. No, it's my fault and your fault. We sinned. That's why he was crucified. All right? But we see that the Romans were the ones that actually put him on the cross, that scourged him, but he was, it was before the high priest. He was the one that watched it all happen. He was the one that wanted to see it happen. He was the one that instigated it, but he didn't put his hand on the Savior. Interesting that they bring this red heifer outside the city gate, just as what happened to Christ. And there he was slaughtered, just as what happened to Christ. And it was before the high priest, and he didn't lay his hand on him, just like what happened to our Savior. It's not by chance in the Bible, you guys. Everything is in the Word for a reason. Now look what it says here. Slaughtered before Him. Again, Jesus brought before Caiaphas. He brings Him out. And it says there that again, what does He become? He becomes that sacrifice. Perfect in every way. Look at verse 4. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of his blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. So the priest would reach him with his finger, take the blood, and turn toward the tabernacle and sprinkle it seven times. Seven in the Bible is the number of what? Completion or perfection. What did Jesus say on the cross? Last words, to talistai, which means what? It is finished. And this is a, an act of completeness, seven times, showing again that that work on the cross would be a complete and a finished work. That Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. His work is sufficient. We simply must confess with our mouth, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and you will be saved. It's not your good works. It's nothing you do. He did it all. And he sprinkles it seven times toward the tabernacle, showing that the, this offering was being made before the Lord where the Shekinah glory dwelt, a way of atonement for His people for their sins. Again, a picture of Christ's perfect and complete sacrifice. Look at verse 5. Then the heifer shall be burned in His sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood and its offal shall be burned. Now, this is like the picture of the burnt offering. The burnt offering was consumed completely. What is this a picture of? His hide, his flesh, his blood. Jesus was scourged. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was tortured. He was consumed completely. Amen? That's what this is a picture of. The hide, that's what happened to our Savior's skin. When they scourged Him 40 times, 30, 39 times, 40 times minus 1, and it grabbed a hold, and, and even, you know, if you've seen the, the movie The Passion, it was worse than that. People say that, that that was too heavy of a depiction. Let me tell you right now, the Bible says that He was unrecognizable. You couldn't recognize Him. It was worse than what you saw in that movie. And that's what happened to our Savior, and that's a picture of what happens here. They take this red heifer, and they tear up its hide, its flesh, it's all burned, its blood, it's consumed completely, a picture of what would happen to our Savior. You know what's awesome about the whole thing is that every bit of it was done out of love for us. Because Jesus loves you. That's why He died. You know, I've had a lot of people come ask me, and I, I want to say this real clear, and I got this from Tim Brown, a pastor in Fremont. While the movie may be silver or brass in some people's eyes, it's a golden opportunity for the gospel. Amen? I have people coming up to me at the Little League field that know that I'm a pastor, and they'll say, man, I saw that movie, and why did he do that? Why did he have to go through that? That just doesn't seem right. Is that an opportunity for the gospel? People come up and say, good Friday, they should call it bad Friday. Right? 
Because, man, what happened to him? That's just, oh. You know, I saw the movie. I went home and I read, I read all four Gospels. That's an opportunity for the Gospel. And what happened to our Savior was done out of love for us. And we see here that He was consumed completely, and that's certainly a picture of the cross. Burned His, his, his hide, His flesh, His blood. Look at verse 6. Now watch this. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them in the midst of the, of the fire burning the heifer. Now, I want to tell you right now, after this verse, if you don't see the cross in this text, I'm going to shake you, okay? I want you to see this. This is awesome, all right? First of all, cedar. Cedar was the choicest of all trees. They, it was infamous. They would talk about the cedars of Lebanon. You remember that? The most beautiful. And what was the cross made out of? Made out of wood, right? Okay, that's part one. Now part two, hyssop. Now this is awesome to me, because I want to confess to you, when I, found, when I saw this today, your pastor started weeping, all right? I've been, for years, I've wondered, why hyssop? Where do we see hyssop? Let me tell you where we see it. First of all, in Exodus 12, the Passover. Remember? Firstborn spotless lamb. What kind of plant did they use to take the blood and put it on the doorpost? What kind of plant was it? Hyssop. All right? Now, what's awesome about that, again, the the Passover pictures what? The cross, right? The blood here, here, head, and feet. The four places where Jesus bled from are the four places they put the, the blood. And if they didn't have the blood of the lamb there, the angel of death would go in and there'd be death. But if they had the blood of the lamb, the angel of death would pass over. It wasn't good enough to slay the lamb. The blood of the lamb had to be applied. It's not good enough to believe that Jesus died on the cross. You must apply it to your own life. You must accept Him as Lord and Savior. Only then will the angel of death pass over. Where else do we see hyssop? In John 19, when Jesus is on the cross, they take a hyssop branch, they put a sponge on it filled with vinegar or gall, and they hold it up to His mouth to give Him some relief. We know that Jesus turns away and won't take it. So we see hyssop at the Passover picture of the cross we see hyssop at the cross where else do we see hyssop in the bible when david was busted by nathan remember david committed adultery with bathsheba you guys remember that story and when he committed adultery with bathsheba he thought he got away with it he had uriah the hittite sent to the front line and killed he took bathsheba as his wife and nathan shows up and tells him a story about a little lamb and david says kill the man and then david says you're the man and then david writes a song And here's what he writes in the psalm, and I love this. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So we see hyssop, again, pointing to redemption. One more time. Actually, two more. Hebrews 9.19 For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book that was the word okay the five books of moses that he had written sprinkled both the book and and all the people so he took what he had written so far in the bible and he sprinkled the blood upon it the law right because the law points us to our need for the savior right the law cannot save us we must be redeemed amen it's interesting that Moses, the type of the law, did not enter into the land of promise, but Joshua, the first of the prophets, did. Why? Because we must have the Savior. Joshua's name is the same name as who? 
Jesus. So Moses, a picture of the law, got him to the land of promise that he couldn't enter in. But Joshua, Jesus, took him into the land of promise. He took the hyssop and he sprinkled the blood on the book, the law, showing that the law is not sufficient. It points us to our need for the Savior. Awesome. Now, watch this last one. I saw this today. You probably won't get as emotional about it as I do because I've been wondering about this hyssop for so long. I can't even tell you. Why hyssop, I thought. Lord, I know there's got to be a reason. And I believe the Lord showed me. In 1 Kings 4.33, it says, And he spoke of the trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. Now, what has that got to do with anything, Pastor Dave? Let me tell you. He's comparing and contrasting the greatness of the cedar tree, the most majest, you know, the greatest of the trees at that time, to the hyssop, which was basically growing out of a wall. It's like a weed. What he's saying is the cedar is the greatest, the most majestic. It's the one that we use the most might with the cedars of Lebanon. There's nothing greater. And then the other thing is the hyssop. Hyssop's like a weed. What do I see there? You know what I see? I see the majesty and the deity and the beauty of our Savior, and then I see His humanity, right? The cedars of Lebanon, the most beautiful of all things, and then the simplicity or the humility of hyssop that's like a weed. Do you think it's by chance that it's cedar and hyssop? It's, by, it's from one extreme, the, the most beautiful of things, to something that is so low in their eyes. It grows out of the wall. It's like a weed. I thought, wow. It's a picture of Christ yet again. Because He's both deity and humanity. He's both perfect, holy God, and He humbled Himself to being nothing that He might suffer and die, that we might have eternal life. He took on all of mankind. What an awesome picture. It may not mean as much to you, but I, I'll tell you what, for years I was like, why? Now I think I understand. Now look at this. That's not enough in that verse. And scarlet. The word there for scarlet is toloth. Okay, what is a toloth? A toloth is a red worm. It's a red worm that crawls up into a, uh, a branch of a tree, attaches itself, and dies in reproduction, leaving a huge red spot on the tree. That's what a toloth is. Now, this, I, I heard somebody say this, I don't know this for a fact, but I've heard that after three days that red spot turns white and then flakes off and blows away. Okay? Now what is that a picture of? Crawls up, attaches itself to a tree, and dies in reproduction, and leaves a red spot there for three days. That's Jesus all over the place, Amen? We've got the cedar trees, a picture of the cross, the hyssop, totally a picture of the humanity of Christ, and a picture in Passover, a picture in, in uh, when He was on the cross. Repeatedly, the hyssop and all of it, Jesus, 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 all of it pointing to the cross so clearly. And they took that cedar and threw it into the fire. They took the hyssop and threw it into the fire. And they took the scarlet and threw it into the fire. And they didn't fully understand, but all of it points clearly to our Savior. What an awesome thing. Blood that flowed down from the cross, verse 7. Now, was, that, was there enough Jesus in that verse or what? Huh? Bible rocks. Verse 7. Then the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. Now, this is interesting. The priest offers the sacrifice, and then he becomes unclean. A couple things I see here. One, all men need salvation no matter what position they hold. Amen? All men, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
But also I believe this can be a picture of our Savior because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now this does not mean that Jesus became a sinner. That's impossible. Amen? Some of this doctrine about Jesus went into hell and became a little wormy thing and had to be born, that's noise. Amen? It means He took the curse of our sin upon Himself and He paid the price for us. Amen? That's what it means. He suffered and died that you and I might have eternal life. He didn't become a sinner. It's impossible because he's holy, perfect God. He can't be. But he can, he was separate. And during that time, you know, when he said, why have thou forsaken me? He did take the curse upon himself and he did suffer the death that you and I should have suffered. He took your place. He took my place because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his forgiveness. He's a great and awesome God. Verse 8. It says, and one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. So also the one who, who uh, burns it and takes it and burns it, he too shall be unclean. Because even touching this sacrifice made them unclean. Verse 9. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside of the camp in a clean place. Now this is a bizarre... Is this bizarre or what? They burn a red cow... Now, can you imagine getting these instructions from Moses? Okay, guys, here's what I want you to do. Go get a red cow. Wait a minute. Run that by me again. Get a what? Get a red cow. Then I want you to find one that's perfect, and then I want you to get some scar... Right, and, giving it, and then when you burn it up, I want you to take the ashes, and I want you to put them in, in a jar, and then I want you to go take them out to a clean place and leave them there. Now, sometimes God asks us to do something, and it makes about that much sense in our heart, right? We just don't get it. What do you... Do what? You want me to move? You want me to do what? You want me to go here? Lord, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand. You know what? We need to just trust God. Amen? I don't have to know. He does. He knows. Trust Him. Now watch this, though. I love this because they take the ashes. Where do they take it? Outside the camp and put it where? In a clean place. What might this be a picture of? The tomb. It says in Luke 23... Speaking of, um, of Joseph of Arimathea, it says, Then he took it, Jesus' body, down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock where no one had ever been laid before. So Jesus, outside the gate, his body was fully consumed, just like the sacrifice, right? The cedar and the scarlet and the hyssop all pointing to him. And then they take the ashes and carry it and put it into a clean place. Isn't that what happened to our Savior? They took the re- what was left of his battered body and they carried him away, wrapped him in linen and put him where? In a clean place. By the way, I've been in that tomb and it's empty. Amen? Awesome. And if you're here in a couple weeks, you're going to see pictures of it. And so, again, the children of Israel were going to be purified and they needed those ashes to be purified. And so they would take the, those ashes and they would set them aside. And look what it says in the rest of this verse. I find this awesome. It says, And there they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel, for the water of purification. It is for the purifying of what? From what? Sin. Is it any clearer what this is a picture of? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. This is a picture of the cross. And it says right here in this verse that this, these ashes are set aside, and what else did they use? Water. So the water and the ashes were mixed together, and through them brought purification. 
In the Bible, the water points to a couple of things, depending on its context. What are a couple of things the water can point to? What's one of them? Water what? The Word, and what else? Living water would be what? The Holy Spirit. What is it that opens the eyes of men to Jesus being Savior? Holy Spirit, and what else? God's Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? Word of God. God's Word does not return void. Isn't it interesting that they take the ashes of this sacrifice, a picture of the Savior, and they mix it with water, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit and the Word, and when brought together, those things purify them from sin. Now it's Jesus alone that purifies us, but it's the Word and the Holy Spirit that reveal to us that, that we need Jesus as our Savior. Is this chapter just blessing you or what? This is awesome, amen? The Old Testament, the red heifer, who knew, right? You do now, right? It's awesome. The Bible. And so this red heifer, again, all pointing to Jesus Christ, to purify from sin. Verse 10, And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever for the children of Israel and to the strangers who dwell among them. So this law was forever for the children of Israel. Now let me explain something to you. Whenever you see that, that forever ends at some point. You know when it is? When the Messiah comes. When that which is perfect has come, everything they don't, right? We don't make sacrifices anymore. These poor folks are looking for a red cow. Right? They should be looking for the Savior, right? They should know Him. And you know what? May we reach out to them in love. May they be provoked to jealousy when they see the joy of the Lord in our hearts. Amen? We got Jesus, you guys. We don't need red cows. We don't need to be building no big temple. You know, and again, in the time, that was God's perfect plan. But when Jesus came, it was done away with. We don't need it anymore. Now, how do we apply this sacrifice? Look at verse 11. He who touches a dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on what day? Third day, and on the seventh day, then he shall be clean. Now, do you think it's the third day by chance? What day did Jesus raise from the dead? Third day. Seven's the number of what? Completeness or perfection. So they take the water that's got the ashes and the water, a picture of the Word, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, and they're cleansed in it. And on the third, when did they do it? On the third day. When did Jesus raise from the dead? Third day. Bible rocks. Seventh day, what do they do? Same thing, a picture that it is finished. It's complete. Christ is sufficient. The work's been done. What an awesome picture. Now look what it says here. But if he does not purify himself on the third day, on the seventh day, he will not be clean. So if he doesn't purify himself, so here's the reality. They can take the ashes, they can take the water, but if the guy doesn't apply it to his life, he will not be made clean. Verse 13, whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. Here's the reality, you guys. If Jesus Christ and His blood has not been applied to your sin and your life, you are still unclean. You cannot enter into His presence because that's where the tabernacle was. That's where the Shekinah glory dwells. We cannot enter in with our sin still upon us. Amen? Must be cleansed. And He says if they're not cleansed, they're cut off. And you know what cut off here? It means not just excommunicated, but executed. If they did not... If they touched the dead body, and then they were not cleansed, then they were put to death. That's heavy. 
But here's the reality. What's it a picture of? It's a picture of what happens to mankind. We are sinners. We've been defiled, just like these people have. And now we have a choice to make. Do you want to apply the blood of Christ? Do you want to take what He's done on the cross for you? Will you accept that perfect gift, or do you want to do it on your own? Sadly, there there were those who remained unclean and reaped the consequences of it. Verse 14, this is the law. When a man dies in a tent, all who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which has no cover fastened to it is unclean. Now, interestingly enough, if you just walked into a tent where there was a dead person, you were unclean. What did this cause them to do? Can you imagine going to someone? Now, do you want to go through the seven-day ritual? You think that would be a fun program? Get some ashes and some, you think they want? No. So what do they do? Can you imagine going to someone's house? Stand outside the tent? Hey, guys. Everybody in there all right? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, 100 people a day dropping like flies, right? I mean, this is the, 38, this is the 40-year death march, right? People drop, you'd be like, you guys all uh, bring, uh, count them off in there. Let me make sure you're all right. Because I'm, I'm not up for the... Now, what did it make them do? Walk circumspectly, right? Watch where you're walking. You touch dead people, you're going to be defiled. Do you know that for us today, it's the same way? The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. The Bible says, can man hold fire to his bosom and not be burned? Can you hang out with the world and not be impacted? The answer is no. You will be impacted every single time. We're to minister to the world but have no fellowship with it. And so he would come and they didn't want to touch. Man, I don't want to touch this thing because I will then be defiled. And it says, if an open vessel is there with no cover on it, it's unclean. So even the stuff in the room was unclean and had to be cleansed. Anything that was near death became unclean. Verse 16. Whoever's in an open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or the bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. You know, the Jews, even to this day, don't, go in, don't want to go anywhere near tombs or graves if they can help it because they consider it to be unclean. Found out an interesting fact. Tiberias is the largest city in the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did 70% of his ministry and Jesus never walked into Tiberias. You know why? It's built on a graveyard. The priests in those days would no, go nowhere near it. Right now, to keep the Messiah from coming into Jerusalem, you know what they put right in front of the eastern gate? A graveyard. They think that's going to keep Jesus out. Oh, good luck. <laughs> Do you know they boarded up the fence and put concrete and bricks there and stuff? We've got pictures of it. We're going to keep that Messiah out. Give me some more bricks. Good luck. Nice try, right? Those are the Muslims doing that. The other guys are looking for a red cow. We need to pray for all of them, Right? <laughs> It's Jesus, you guys. He put the stars in the sky, putting some bricks up is not going to slow him down, right? He's going to step in the Mount of Olives, we're going to be behind him, he's going to split in two, and he's walking in, and they're not going to stop him. Amen? Now, we see here that touching death, whether it was through a violent death, or old bones, or walking on a grave, no matter what, the result was sin. They were to be holy, for I am holy. Walk circumspectly. Watch where you walk. Don't step on a, 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 you know, so they had to be very careful where they went. And as Christians, we need to be led by the Spirit and obedient to the Spirit and watch where we go and what we enter into and who we hang out with. I tell people all the time, I've, I've told you and I'll tell you again, you want to know what you're like? Look at the people you hang out with. Look at the people you hang out with. That's you. That's reality. Now, that could be a scary thought, Right? But the reality is, if you're hanging around a bunch of people that are part, you're probably a partier. If you're hanging around a bunch of people that don't have a love for the you probably don't either. If you're hanging around a bunch of people that aren't serving and walking with God, you're probably not either. But if you're walking with people who are in love with the Lord, you're holding up their hands and keeping them accountable, and they're doing the same for you. And you know what? Iron sharpens iron, so man builds up a countenance of a friend. Amen? That's it. 
And so he says here, you know what? If you touch any of this, you're defiled. And there's only one form of purification. Almost done. Look at verse 17. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer, burnt for purification from sin, and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. The word there for running could also be interpreted living. Find that interesting. So they took the ashes, some running or living or non-stagnant water, put it in a vessel, and that was the thing that cleansed them. The Holy Spirit, ashes, a picture of Christ, right? What draws us to salvation? Who draws us to salvation? The Holy Spirit. Clear picture of today. Verse 18. A clean person shall take hyssop. There it is again, hyssop. And dip it in water, sprinkle it on the tent and on all the vessels and the person's who were there, or on one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or the grave. What did they need to be cleansed? What, what, who, what happened to bring that, that living water and that ash and then sprinkle it on the people that they might be cleansed? Somebody who was already clean brought it to them. What's that a picture of? Us. You've been born again? You know somebody who doesn't know God? They're dead in their trespasses and sins. God wants you to bring the living water and the living word and the picture of and Jesus Christ to them. Amen? He wants you to come and say, hey, bro, I know what you're going through. Let me share something with you. Jesus loves you and he died that you might have eternal life. Let me pray for you. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to come and sprinkle it on them. Amen? We're supposed to bring them the word. We're supposed to bring them the truth. What an awesome privilege that not only are we born again, but we get to share the love of God with a lost and a dying world. Praise the Lord. That's why we breathe in and out, you guys. That's why we're here. We're to minister the truth to unbelievers. Share, and we're to be empowered by the Holy Spirit because without Him we can do nothing. We're to speak in humility. We're to bring Him the truth. Verse 19. The clean person shall spring the, the unclean on the third day, on the seventh day, and the seventh day shall purify himself, wash his clothes, bathe in water, and at evening he shall be made clean. So not only did the person have it sprinkled upon him, but he had to go in and wash himself. Last three verses. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. You know what? Today, there's only two camps. Clean and unclean. Saved, dead in your trespasses and sins. New creation in Christ or still wrapped up in your old life. There's no in between. There's no kind of saved. There's no on your path. People say, well, I'm kind of on my path to getting saved. I'm like, man, you better get there before the rapture or a bus hits you. Amen? Because if you're not saved yet, you're not saved at all. Now, again, love those people. Minister truth to them. But it says there, if the water has not been applied, if the sacrifice has not been applied, dead in your sins, unclean, not going to heaven. Well, Pastor Dave, that's kind of rough. No, what's rough is rejecting a loving God who suffered and died that you might have eternal life and and us saying, I don't need you. You know, Lord, it's all good. Now, why wouldn't somebody take that water and apply it to themselves? Why would they want to be cut off? Why would they want the potential of being excommunicated or even executed? Why in the world wouldn't everybody go, oh, I'm unclean, clean me? Why wouldn't they? Let me tell you why. The same reasons I believe today. One, they don't truly believe they're unclean. Right? Oh, I'm not a sinner. What are you talking about? Two, 
They don't truly believe the judgment is coming. They don't, they don't believe it. If, if people saw hell for 10 seconds, church would be full on Sunday. Right? Now there'd be some that would still, oh, whatever. But the point is, if people really believed that judgment was coming, wouldn't it shake some folks up? But instead it's, ah, I'm not so sure. You know, whether you're sure or not doesn't make it truth. It's going to happen. God's faithful. He's in control. We're not voting on it. God said so. That's it, right? And so we see here in this text that they'd be cut off from their people and they don't submit themselves to it and unrepented sin has consequences every single time. And look what it says there. When that unrepented sin comes into the assembly, what does it do? It corrupts the entire assembly. It corrupts. God can't have one sin in His heaven or He's got earth, in, or he's got earth part two, right? God can't have any sin in His presence because He's perfect, holy God. Period. So if I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, God can't have sin in His presence. We've got a problem. That's why Jesus came to purify us and wash away our sin that we might enter in. Last two verses. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes. He who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. The person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Interesting that anything an unclean person touched became unclean. You know what? May we as, clean, may we as born, not perfect, but born again new creations in Christ... May what we touch be impact for the kingdom. Amen? In closing, anything, in, today as Christians, we too live in a world surrounded by what? Death. Amen? People, the Bible says that people that aren't saved are what? They're dead in their trespasses and sins. Now they can become a new creation in Christ. They're physically alive, spiritually dead. God's desire is that they would know Him and they would be born again, but He's not going to force Himself on anybody. So what are we called to do? We are called to share the truth with a lost and dying world. Now, while we don't worry about external ritual uncleanness, God still wants us to walk in holiness, to live in obedience to His Word. A young man over at the youth group, on close of this, came up to me tonight. He said, Pastor Dave, you know, I got a guy at school I've been sharing with, and he says, yeah, I sin, I sin, but... You know, what's the big deal? I mean, kind of like I was talking about before, I'm born again, so it's okay, right? And understand, I've said this to you before, sin is not bad. Or sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Why does God forbid us to sin? Because He loves us. Amen? It's not bad because, God, oh, God said I can't do it. Okay, well, that would have been great, a lot of fun. It would have been great for me. It would have helped me a lot, but I can't do it because God said no. Is that sin? Sin is, I love you, that will harm you. That will separate you from me, which is first and foremost, and it will bring harm to your life. He loves us. He wants us to walk in holiness and in obedience to Him, and then we'll have blessings, and we'll have joy. Amen? He loves me. When I tell my kids, don't touch the hot stove, it's not because I'm a no-fun bummer dad. It's because I love them. Amen? I remember telling my, my son that one time, and he reached up and touched the stove and comes running in, ah, right? And he's blaming me, right? Why did you let it? Uh, didn't I tell you? No, oh, but I didn't know, right? We kind of do that with God, don't we? Don't do that. And we do it, man, God, why did you let that happen? What, 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 did you read my book? Have you seen the love letter I wrote you? Blow the dust off that thing and you won't, you know, right? And instead, we just want to go contrary to his will. 
God wants us to walk in holiness and obedience to His Word, to sprinkle the truth of God's Word on those around us, to point them to the one and only true sacrifice that can save us, the one we saw in this chapter, Jesus Christ. It's no longer about rituals or Old Testament sacrifices. It's all been done away with. It's all about Jesus now, amen? Let's point them all to Him. It was all about Jesus then. It was just a foreshadowing of that which is to come. May we be salt and light to a lost and dying world. May we pray that their eyes would be opened. May, we, may they see the truth of Jesus Christ and stop looking for red cows and stop boarding up stuff to keep the Messiah out. Amen? We need to share Jesus with them. We need to share truth with them. Let's live godly. Let's be loving. Let's be gracious. Let's be obedient. And may they envy us. May we provoke them to jealousy when they see the love of God in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word. And we thank You that a book written thousands of years ago can be such a clear picture of our Savior. We thank You, Lord, that it is finished. We thank You that the veil has been torn. We thank You, Lord, that we can enter into Your presence anywhere and anytime. We thank You that we don't have to go through ritual cleansings anymore, but that we've been made clean through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Help us, Lord, to see people with Your eyes. Help us to love people the way You do. Help our hearts to break for those who are, who are dead in their trespasses and sin. Help us, Lord, to reach out to them in love and in grace. But Lord, at the same time, help us to walk in holiness. Help us, Lord, to walk in obedience. To be the men and women of God you've called us to be. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.